Welcome back, compadres, to the Hemingway List podcast. Uh, my table is very squeaky tonight. Can you hear all this squeaking? Um, that's okay. My table just wants to be heard. I am I've in a bad habit at the moment um, today and yesterday um, of leaving the podcast very late until I'm really tired. Uh, I did it last night. I'm doing it again tonight. I do apologize if I'm a bit sleepy. And if yesterday's episode was a bit drowsy, I'll do my best to not sound drowsy tonight, but I am quite drowsy. Um, what was I saying? Things. <laughs> oh, this is what I was saying. The discussion prompts. Philip getting his foot fixed would do him a world of good. And Cronjor is making me sad. I think, um, I think, yeah, Philip having his foot looked at and and fixed to some degree or to any degree, I just feel like it would, it would help his confidence a lot. I think he said, you know, he'd be hopeful not to be 100%, but at least to be able to wear a normal boot on that foot. And I just think, yeah, I really think that would do him a lot of good. Cronshaw making me sad. I mean, what more do we need to say? Cronshaw is ready to die he's got this last hope of having his poems published and um i don't know i just see tragedy i'm not really sure how it will play out tragically but i just see a sad end for cronshaw i just see sort of a fizzling out disappointing sort of thing i think it's because we were talking about like um about what are we talking about um alcoholism and how poems don't tend to see a lot of success. I don't know. I don't know why I got that in my head. That's what's going to happen to Cronshaw, but I do have that in my head. Um, oh, yeah, I had band practice tonight. My band was able to get in a room, or at least three of us were. The singer is um, a bit too far away still to be able to uh, travel um, because of COVID. We've got a 25-kilometer restriction on how far we're allowed to go, and he's just outside that. Um, but three of us were get to, able to get together and have a bit of a jam and um, very rusty, I must say. We were very rusty, but it felt so good to... Oh, I mean, it's been I think it's been more than six months since we've played together. So that, that was really cool. I am Norwegian said this. Hey, I'm finally caught up again. I've been enjoying the book a ton. I love War and Peace, but lately I've found myself more immersed in of human bondage when I pick it up, while War and Peace has become a sort of automatic daily chore. I wonder how Philip is going to screw up things next. War and Peace is a long book, and when I remember it, I remember all these really brilliant moments and parts of the book that I loved, but I also do remember like full weeks, fortnights, maybe even a month where there's just kind of a lull in the book, if you're reading it daily, that is, of, you know, 20, 25, 30 chapters where you're just plodding along. And I think maybe if I read them back, there'd be a lot of interesting stuff there. But, um, yeah, I definitely hit that same slump that you seem to be feeling now. I am Norwegian. But rest assured, keep reading it, because when you look back on it at the end, I don't know, something about that book, War and Peace, I want to read it again. And... Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's like you live with those characters and, and when you finished, you kind of feel like you wish you hadn't finished, you know? Jan Brun said this. Thanks for the kind words yesterday. Um, you're welcome. Uh, I've lost a lot of people this year, but his death was pretty hard. Oh, man. Jan Brun, you're having a, a bad year. I mean, I suppose <laughs> it's not a great year for anyone, but I can't say the same. You know, I can't say I've lost a lot of people this year. So um, you have my sympathy that this year is even harder for you because of that. And your friend's death, the poet, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, he didn't need to die. <laughs> Not that any, I don't know why I said that. No one needs to die. You know what I mean? Like, like he, he uh, it was needless. It was, yeah. I mean, I don't know the circumstances, but, you know, when someone sort of, I don't know, surrenders to it. And you, and, and I'm, I'm just kind of, you know what I'm doing? I'm comparing him to Cronshaw and I'm, I'm sort of drawing conclusions. But um, what we're watching Cronshaw do here of just sort of surrendering to it, it's just, it gives you this feeling of kind of helplessness, doesn't it? Um, anyway, your friend, what did you say here? He wrote mostly long abstract poems, so they aren't really suited for Reddit. But here's a short one. Hey, I'm happy to tackle one if it's um i mean maybe you don't want it um publicly released you know maybe these are in books that he's published um it's called uh, the short one's called contrary to minor praise and it goes like this never be afraid of love until it has gone away until you only hold regret then be afraid scared shitless Nice sentiment, you know, don't be afraid to love, um, you have to let yourself love, uh, kind of with a reckless abandon, knowing that, you know, if it goes away, that's scary, and you should be scared shitless at that point, but you shouldn't go into it with fear in your heart, I don't think, very nice, very nice. Thank you for sharing your friend's poem with us, Jan Brunt. Much appreciated. I am going to now read us chapter 85 of this book. If I can find the right page. Yep, there it is. Oh, gosh. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> okay, 85 goes like this. About a fortnight after this, Philip, going home one evening after his day's work at the hospital... Knocked at the door of Cronshaw's room. He got no answer and walked in. Cronshaw was lying huddled up on one side, and Philip went up to the bed. He did not know whether Cronshaw was asleep or merely lay there in one of his uncomfortable fits of irritability. He was surprised to see that his mouth was open. He touched his shoulder. Philip gave a cry of dismay. He slipped his hand under Cronshaw's shirt and felt his heart. He did not know what to do helplessly because he had heard of this being done. He held a looking glass in front of his mouth. It startled him to be alone with Cronshaw. He had his hat and his coat still on, and he ran down to the stairs, into the street. He hailed a cab and drove to Harley Street. Dr. Tyrell was in. I say, would you mind coming at once? I think Cronshaw's dead. If he is, it's not much good my coming, is it? I should be awfully grateful if you would. I've got a cab at the door. It'll only take half an hour. Tyrell put on his hat. In the cab, he asked him one or two questions. He seemed no worse than usual when I left this morning, said Philip. It gave me an awful shock when I went in just now, and the thought of his dying all alone. Do you think he knew he was going to die? 
Philip remembered what Cronshaw had said. He wondered whether at the last moment he had been seized with a terror of death. Philip imagined himself in such a plight, knowing it was inevitable, and with no one, not a soul, to give an encouraging word when the fear seized him. "'You're rather upset,' said Dr. Tyrell. He looked at him with his bright blue eyes. They were not unsympathetic. When he saw Cronshaw, he said, "'He must have been dead for some hours. I should think he died in his sleep. They do, sometimes.' The body looked shrunk and ignoble. It was not like anything human. Dr. Tyrell looked at it dispassionately. With a mechanical gesture, he took out his watch. Well, I must be getting along. I'll send the certificate around. I suppose you'll communicate with the relatives. I don't think there are any, said Philip. How about the funeral? Oh, I'll see to that. Dr. Tyrell gave Philip a glance. He wondered whether he ought to offer up a couple of sovereigns towards it. He knew nothing of Philip's circumstances. Perhaps he could well afford the expense. Philip might think it impertinent if he made any suggestion. Well, let me know if there's anything I can do, he said. Philip and he went out together, parting on the doorstep, and Philip went to a telegraph office in order to send a message to Leonard Upjohn. Then he went to an undertaker whose shop he passed every day on his way to the hospital. His attention had been drawn to it often by the three words in silver lettering on a black cloth which, with two model coffins, adorned the window. Economy, celerity, propriety. They had always diverted him. The undertaker was a little fat Jew with a curly black hair, with curly black hair, long and greasy in black, with a large diamond ring on his podgy finger. He received Philip with a peculiar manner formed by the mingling of his natural blatancy with the subdued air proper to his calling. He quickly saw that Philip was very helpless and promised to send round a woman at once to perform the needful offices. His suggestions for the funeral were very magnificent and Philip felt ashamed of himself when the undertaker seemed to think his objections mean. It was horrible to haggle on such a matter and finally Philip consented to an expensiveness which he could ill afford. I quite understand, sir, said the undertaker. You don't want any show, and that I'm not a believer in ostentation myself, mind you, but you want it done gentlemanly-like. You leave it to me, I'll do it as cheap as it can be done, having regard to what's right and proper. I can't say more than that, can I? Philip went home to eat his supper, and while he ate, the woman came along and lay out the corpse. Presently a telegram arrived from Leonard Upjohn. Shocked and grieved beyond measure. Regret cannot come tonight. Dining out with you early tomorrow. Deepest sympathy, Upjohn. In a while, in a little while, the woman knocked at the door of the sitting room. I've done now, sir. Will you come and look at him and see if it's all right? Philip followed her. Cronshaw was laying on his back with his eyes closed and his hands folded piously across his chest. You ought by rights to have a few flowers, sir. I'll get some tomorrow. She gave the body a glance of satisfaction. She had performed her job, and now she rolled down her sleeves, took off her apron, and put on her bonnet. Philip asked her how much he owed her. Well, sir, give me some. Give me two and sixpence, and I and some. Well, sir, give me two and sixpence, and some. Give me five shillings. Philip was ashamed to give her less than the larger. Some. Oh, I get it. Some give me two and sixpence, and some give me five shillings. Philip was ashamed to give her less than that larger sum. 
She thanked him with just so much effusiveness as was seemly in presence of the grief he might be supposed to feel, and left him. Philip went back into his sitting room, cleared away the remains of his supper, and sat down to read Walsham's surgery. He found it difficult. He felt singularly nervous. When there was a sound on the stairs, he jumped and his heart beat violently. That thing in the adjoining room, which had been a man and now was nothing, frightened him. The silence seemed alive, as if some mysterious movement were taking place within it. The presence of death weighed upon these rooms, unearthly and terrifying. Philip felt a sudden horror for what had once been his friend. He tried to force himself to read, but presently pushed away his book in despair. What troubled him was the absolute futility of the life which had just ended. It did not matter if Cronshaw was alive or dead. It would have been just as well if he had never lived. Philip thought of Cronshaw young, and it needed an effort of imagination to picture him slender with a springing step and with hair on his head buoyant and hopeful. Philip's rule of life, to follow one's instincts and with due regard to the policeman around the corner, had not acted very well there. It was because Cronshaw had done this that he had made his such a lamentable failure of existence. It seemed that the instincts could not be trusted. Philip was puzzled and he asked himself what rule of life that was there, if that one was useless and why people acted in one way rather than in another. They acted according to their emotions, but their emotions might be good or bad. It seemed just a chance whether they led to triumph or disaster. Life seemed an inextricable confusion. Men hurried hither and thither, urged by forces they knew not, and the purpose of it all escaped them. They seemed to hurry just for hurrying's sake. Next morning, Leonard Upjohn appeared with a small wreath of laurel. He was pleased with his idea of crowning the dead poet with this, and attempted, notwithstanding Philip's disapproving silence, to fix it on the bald head. But the wreath fitted grotesquely. It looked like the brim of a hat worn by a low comedian in a music hall. I'll put it over his head instead. His heart instead, said Upjohn. You've put it on his stomach, remarked Philip. Upjohn gave a thin smile. Only a poet knows where lies a poet's heart. He answered. They went back into the sitting room and Philip told him what arrangements he had made for the funeral. I hope you've spared no expense. I should like the hearse to be followed by a long string of empty coaches and I should like the horses to wear tall nodding plumes and there should be a vast number of mutes with long streamers on their hats. I like the thought of all those empty coaches. As the cost of the funeral will apparently fall on me, I'm not overflushed just now. I've tried to make it as moderate as possible. But, my dear fellow, in that case, why didn't you get him a pauper's funeral? There would have been something poetic in that. You have an unerring instinct for mediocrity. Philip flushed a little but did not answer, and next day he and Upjohn followed the hearse in the one carriage which Philip had ordered. Lawson, unable to come, had sent a wreath, and Philip, so that the coffin should not seem too neglected, had brought a couple. On the way back, the coachman whipped up his horses, Philip was dog-tired and presently went to sleep. He was awakened by Upjohn's voice. It's rather lucky the poems haven't come out yet. I think we'd better hold them back a bit and I'll write a preface. preface. I began thinking of it during the drive to the cemetery. I believe I can do something rather good. Anyhow, I'll start with an article in the Saturday. Philip did not reply and there was a silence between them. At last Upjohn said, I dare say I'd be wiser not to whittle away my copy. 
I think I'll do an article for one of the reviews and then I can just print it afterwards as a preface. Philip kept his eye on the mono, on the month monthlies and a few weeks later it appeared. The article made something of a stir and the extracts from it were printed in many of the papers. It was a very good article, vaguely biographical, for no one knew much of Cronshaw's early life, but delicate, tender and picturesque. Leonard Upjohn, in his intricate style, drew graceful little pictures of Cronshaw in the Latin Quarter, talking, writing poetry. Cronshaw became a picturesque figure. An English Verlaine, and Leonard Upjohn's coloured phrases took on a tremulous dignity. A more pathetic grandiloquency, as he described the sordid end, the shabby little room in Soho, and with a reticence which was wholly charming and suggested a much greater generosity than modesty allowed him to state, the efforts he made to transport the poet to some cottage embowed with honeysuckle amid a flowering orchard, and the lack of sympathy, while meaning but so tactless, which had taken the poet instead to the vulgar respectability of Kennington. Leonard Amchon described Kennington, with that restrained humour which a strict adherence to the vocabulary of Sir Thomas Brown necessitated. With delicate sarcasm he narrated the last weeks, the patience with which Cronshaw bore the well-meaning clumsiness of the young student who had appointed himself his nurse, and the pitifulness of that divine vagabond in those hopelessly middle-class surroundings. Beauty from ashes, he quoted from Ishaya. It was a triumph of irony for that outcast poet to die amid the trappings of vulgar respectability, it reminded Leonard Upjohn of Christ among the Pharisees. And the analogy gave him opportunity for an exquisite passage. And then he told how a friend his good taste did not suffer him more than to hint subtly who the friend was with such gracious fancies, had laid a laurel wreath on the dead poet's heart. And the beautiful dead hands had seemed to rest with a voluptuousness passion upon Apollo's leaves, fragrant with the fragrance of art, and more green and jade brought by swart mariners from the manifold, inexplicable China. And an admirable contrast, the article ended with a description of the middle-class, ordinary, prosaic funeral of him who should have been buried like a prince or like a pauper. It was the crowning buffet, the final victory of Philistia over art, beauty, and immaterial things. Leonard Upjohn had never written anything better. It was a miracle of charm, grace and pity. He printed all Cronshaw's best poems in the course of the article, so that when the volume appeared, much of its point was gone. But he advanced his own position a good deal. He was thenceforth a critic to be reckoned with. He had seemed before a little aloof, but there was a warm humanity about this article which was infinitely attractive. Alright, there we go. That's that chapter done. Poor old Cronshaw. Kind of saw that coming though, didn't we? Have your say over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening and I shall see you tomorrow.